This is National Nurses Week. We dedicate this episode to all the nurses out there who truly care for their patients. without end tonight for murdering four children in her care and for injuring nine others. She was given life 13 times over and was told there was no real chance of her ever being free again. When she was arrested, it was complete shock and disbelief. I just could not believe how could ever a nurse working with me had carried out all those heinous crimes. We'd seen a, a, a picture of, of a young woman that manipulated people around her, boyfriends, friends, other nurses. But the one central thing was that here was somebody that needed to be the centre of attention. I don't think healthcare professionals become killers. I think killers can become healthcare professionals who use the situation to actually target victims or carry out whatever their own fantasies or ideas were. We have never ever heard a nurse ever killing or harming any child in United Kingdom till then. The term angel of death, it wasn't something that had been mentioned a lot. I wasn't wasn't a term I was I was aware of before the Beverly Alec case. We've certainly heard it many, many times since then. Angel of death is a term that uh, many prefer in the criminology trade for doctors and nurses and perhaps a few other hospital-type employees who kill patients one after the other, usually by poisoning. But the angel part is because she posed, if you like, as a nurse and did it from the position of a responsible medical person who's supposed to be looking after these children. So instead of an angel of mercy, she was an angel of death. I think in the specific case of Beverly Allen, we can almost certainly suppose that she did have some illness, no matter how minor or serious, uh, which received attention. And from that day on, I think she would slowly but surely start to manufacture illnesses to maintain that level of attention. I interviewed her over 17 hours, two days um, after each file, and frankly, she didn't admit to anything. She was a strange girl in that she showed no fear of the situation that she found herself in. She proffered that she was trying to be helpful and she tried to distance herself from each of the collapses. By that I mean to say that she would say things like, well I wasn't there, I only came on the scene later, I wasn't even there that day. The case of a, a nurse killing children, there hadn't been any in the UK, so people refused to believe that that was what Alec had done. At the same time, of course, they were trying to come to terms with the accusations that were being made against a friend of theirs, someone who lived in the village. No one would believe, even the parents concerned, that she had done what a lot of people seemed to be saying she had done. Welcome to True Crime Brewery. I'm Jill. And I'm Dick. Good evening, everyone. Now, in Grantham Hospital back in 1991... There was a spike in emergency incidents in the children's ward four. Over several weeks, four children and infants died unexpectedly. Nine others suffered unexplained collapses and near-death health events. Now, physicians and administrators were desperate to explain these tragic incidents. Parents were heartbroken, of course, and terrified. When natural causes were eliminated, it emerged that there was serious wrongdoing going on on ward four. 
Suspicions had turned to a young nurse, Beverly Allett, who'd been at the bedside of each of the young victims as they went into respiratory failure or cardiac arrest. Now, Beverly was an eager young nurse trusted by her patient's parents, but investigations revealed 25 separate suspicious episodes with 13 identified victims. Four of these victims had died, and the only common factor was the nurse who was present, Beverly Allett. Now, at the quiet end today, Dick and I are discussing a killer nurse, Beverly Allett, a nurse without mercy for her young, vulnerable patients or for their suffering parents and families. It's a case that shocked a small English community and the world. We're going to enjoy a British beer right after I thank some of our amazing five-star reviewers. So thank you so much for your kindnesses. 2222M, Gretchen5555, Elvin SL, Annie Banani 42 Cheap and Evil, Nikki Maher 2, Samantha Ann, JCTX, True Crime Loving Mama, I really like that one, AJ Morgan 99, Damon Zalila, Command Mints, and of course, Kimmy Claus. Kimmy Claus? Yes. That's Santa's little sister, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I believe that's in the literature you'll read about Kimmy Claus. Yeah. Okay, I thought so. She was the one who got him actually started in making all the toys and stuff. She, she re- did. She recruited the elves, did a whole bunch of work for him. There's usually a woman behind such a successful business. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, what have you brought us for our British beer? I have a British beer called Samuel Smith's Yorkshire Stingo. Nice. Cool name, huh? Very nice. This is brewed at Samuel Smith Old Brewery, Tadcaster, England, in the UK. I think we've had a beer from that brewery before, right? Maybe with Madeline McCann or something? I'm not sure. I think we did. Samuel Smith, or or Sammy, as I like to call the brewery, (laughs) uh, is one of my favorite British brewers. I've I've had a ton of beers from them, and I think they do a beautiful job. Okay. So this particular one, this one called the Yorkshire Stingo, is an English strong ale. So these are beers that are bigger than a pale ale, but smaller than a barley wine. They tend to be rich and complex. They're amber to reddish copper in color. There's a mix of fruitiness and maltiness with a variable hop presence. And the alcohol can be fairly noticeable. So these these can be sippers. (laughs) Okay. So this particular one, the Yorkshire Stingo, is a red copper color with a medium-sized tan head. It has a caramel aroma and some dark fruit. There is a caramel taste, some raisins, and a tiny bit of bitterness in the end of the taste. Now, in the mouth, it feels a little sharper and metallic, but not not necessarily off-putting. It's a good good beer. Okay. Let's try it. Okay. Let's take it down to our little nook at the quiet end. And you've brought two bottles. And what type of glasses? These are going to be in pint glasses. Okay, because we are doing a British beer. We are doing a British beer, so we have to serve a proper pint. Okay. All right, let's open her up. Okay. Okay, I'm ready to go to the quiet end. Let's go. All right. Got the beer, got the glasses. I'm noticing there's a couple, like, 20-somethings. Yeah. And they're knitting. Knitting's like the new thing to do in college and stuff, I've read. Yeah. Yeah, I read an article in The New Yorker about that. It's a pretty cool craft. I mean, some some people can knit beautiful things. They can, yes. 
Yeah, my grandmother was more of a crocheter. So we had crocheted afghans and things. Yeah. That's similar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it's a cool craft. I wish well, I could do it. It's really relaxing. It's a great thing to do when you're um, listening to podcasts, actually. Yeah. Keeps your hands busy and your mind's busy with the podcast. You don't, you don't or, even have to look. If you're a good knitter, you don't have to look down at what you're knitting. You just do it. That's true. And you can be watching TV. You can be talking with people. You can be listening to us on the podcast. All sorts of stuff. That's right. And knitting's pretty cool. I'm, I'm always, I wouldn't say jealous, but I, <laughs> I wish I could do it. Well, you could. All you'd have to do is learn. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm too old and slow. I think you could do it, but I'm not going to push it. <laughs> I know. If you see me with a ball of yarn and two needles, <laughs> you'll know what I'm doing. But at a bar, it's kind of cool to see, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the victims of killer nurse Beverly Allett couldn't have been more vulnerable. No, they were infants and little kids. Yep. And their worried parents had really put their trust in Beverly, leaving her in charge of their sick babies and their children and... Actually, these children weren't in the hospital for life-or-death illnesses either. They had minor infections. They had feeding issues. There was no reason for any of them to die in that hospital and not return home. No. I mean, that, that would be suspicion number one, that a, a fairly healthy newborn or child dies unexpectedly. Yes, absolutely. But it, it took a while before people started thinking about that. Well, yeah. 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 Now, baby Liam James Taylor, just seven weeks old, he was a healthy, chubby boy, and his family affectionately called him Pudding Pants because he was such a chubber. <laughs> <laughs> just cute. And he was born in Grantham's maternity ward, and he weighed nine pounds, three ounces. But then at seven weeks, he was hospitalized. He just had a cold, which had turned into bronchiolitis, and his parents were advised that he could be monitored in the hospital as he recovered, just as a safety, just as a precaution, I guess. So just, I'm sorry to interrupt like this. No, you're not. Go I ahead. Mean, you, you mentioned bronchiolitis. I did. And I, I didn't want people to think that was the same thing as bronchitis. Okay, good, so, good point. So bronchiolitis is a disease that little kids get. It's yes. caused by viruses, most famously by a virus called respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. But bronchiolitis makes you run a fever and breathe fast and sound kind of wheezy. So people sometimes confuse it with asthma, which it's not. But it is certainly distinct from bronchitis. And how threatening is it as an illness? It can be pretty non-threatening to life-threatening. I mean, premature infants that get it can die. Well, let's stick with a healthy seven-week-old boy. Well, a healthy set. Well, because of his age, seven weeks... He's more at risk. Well, I think that's why he was hospitalized and watched. Yeah. Otherwise, he wouldn't have even been hospitalized. Probably not. Right. I mean, if he was a two-year-old with this bronchiolitis, yeah, he, he probably wouldn't have been hospitalized. Well, in lay terms, it's just kind of like a chest cold. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a super bad chest cold. What do you mean super bad? It, it's You have more symptoms. You have to work harder to breathe. It's It makes you uh, sicker. Yeah, so it's basically some some congestion in the lungs, increased mucus. No, no. it's um, constriction of the airway so that you wheeze. Okay, and it's caused by a virus. Right. So it's an extended cold. Yeah. With uh, worse uh, symptoms. An extended bad cold. I'm making it muddier, aren't I? Yes. <laughs> Instead of clarifying it. Okay, 
So he had an illness that, what would you say? How serious was the illness then? Well, the I doctor mean, didn't seem to think he I was mean, very I, sick. I think it's, it was serious enough that because of his age, I'd want him in the hospital for observation. Because these kids can get pretty sick pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the, the hospitalization, because he is only seven weeks old, was warranted. But this is not something where you would expect him that he might die. No. No. I mean... Well, I guess that's the main point I'm getting to here. Yeah, I, I understand that. Okay. I mean, I think you're, you're hospitalizing him to observe him so that if he's getting worse, you can transfer him to a tertiary care center. Yes, right, right. But okay. you, you don't really expect that a healthy, and this is a big kid, nine pounds at birth. Mm-hmm. So this, yep. is, this is a big bruiser kid. Good in pants. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't expect that he'd be getting into real, real trouble. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm figuring I'm going to admit him for a day or two. He's going to stabilize. I'm going to send him home. Right. He was expected to be discharged home in a couple of days. That's what his doctor said as well. So the doctor told Liam's mom that this was just a precaution, and she seemed quite reassured with that. And Liam's father, Chris, he worked installing suspended ceilings. So he's a blue-collar worker, working hard. And when he arrives home at 3 p.m., his wife, Joanne, had left him a note on the front door. And it said she'd taken Liam to stay on Ward 4 at Grantham Hospital because his cold had gotten worse that day. So Chris went straight to Ward 4. And by the time he arrived, Liam had already improved. He was lying in a glass incubator in his diaper, and he was getting humidified oxygen to clear his airway. He was alert and appeared content. Now the nurse at Liam's bedside assured Chris and Joanne that Liam would be fine and back home in a few days. So this was Nurse Beverly Allett, and she was giving Liam a tube feeding because his nose was so congested he couldn't suck on the bottle. I mean, you have to be really stuck up to be able to need a tube feeding. Well, see, from what I read, maybe in the 90s it was a little more common to just go ahead and do that. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. As I look back 25, 30 years ago, um, it, it could be. I mean, most of the time you're going to go with oral feeds. And she'd actually been assigned as Liam's one-to-one special care nurse. Yeah. So I think they called it, she was his specials, they said. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're watching a kid closely for signs of respiratory distress and decompensation. And so you'd have more one-on-one nursing instead of the nurse taking care of two or three other kids. She's basically his private duty nurse. Plus, Beverly's not super experienced. She's a newly qualified state-enrolled nurse who's spent the past six months as a student on, on Ward 4. Yeah, so that's one thing. Yes. I mean, if, if I'm going to have someone doing more one-on-one nursing, I would want an experienced nurse and not a student nurse or a newly graduated nurse. Well, I think what you want and what you get is a little different because the ward was really short of staff. Yeah. And they'd advertised for an experienced staff nurse, but hadn't received any applications. So you take what you got. Right. And, and she was eager, right? Wanted very to eager, learn. Very eager. So Beverly was asked to stay on, and she seemed to take every opportunity to learn and to gain experience. So people got a good vibe from her that way. And things were going so well with Liam that Chris and Joanne agreed to go home for an hour or two. But when the parents returned, Beverly gave them bad news right away. She said, we've been trying to reach you. Liam has taken a turn for the worse. So Chris and Joanne went to their baby's bedside and saw that he was actually fighting for his life at that point. His eyes were closed. His color was ashen. 
His chubby little body was covered in wires and tubes. He was on a heart monitor with an IV drip. So this is an hour. Drastic change has happened. And unexpected. Yes. I mean, yes, you've admitted him to see that he doesn't get sicker, but it it doesn't happen that quickly. It's more of a gradual thing if you're going to get sicker. So that's suspicious right there. So, yeah, I'm thinking, here's this kid who, who was hospitalized for observation. He's actually improved. Right. Since admission. Parents Until go, his parents left. Parents go home. Boom. Boom. <laughs> I know. You like to say that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say boom, so I said it. You did. <laughs> You're stealing my stuff. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Beverly stood nearby, which was a little eerie because she was calm and her arms were folded across her chest. When Joanne asked her what had happened, the stoic nurse became animated and she described how the baby had vomited and stopped breathing during his tube feeding that she was giving him. Well, I guess I'd ask first, is the tube in the right place? Right, right. I mean, this this is all kind of supposition and who knows. But, you know, you put the tube down. What if she, what if she put it down his airway instead of his esophagus? Right. But we know that that wasn't the case. We now do. That we've read everything about it. But, right. But, but at that point, yes. But yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd be worried that this is a relatively inexperienced nurse. She'd do the right thing. Yeah. Now, Joanne and Chris, they listened horrified as this young nurse explained what had happened, but they really appreciated Beverly's knowledge and her openness with them. And she stayed with them through this difficult time, and they began to see her as a friend. Now, the pediatrician told Chris and Joanne that the next 24 hours were crucial for Liam. Beverly stayed one-on-one with Liam until 10 p.m., and through the night with another nurse at his side, he showed improvement. His vital signs were stable, his color was pink, and the exhausted couple napped for a few hours in a room down the hall they had set aside for parents. Now at 7 a.m., Beverly came back on duty for the day, and she cared for Liam throughout her shift, and then when a night nurse called out that night, Chris actually asked her, to come back and work the night shift with Liam because he really felt that she was good with his son. So Beverly went home that afternoon and returned at 10 p.m. to do the night shift with Liam. Now, while Beverly had been away, Liam had really made some progress. The staff had been remarking on his progress. He'd been drinking from his bottle, following people with his eyes, and cooing at his parents. And then around midnight, Chris and Joanne went to sleep down the hall in the parents' room. Sister Jean Seville, the night nurse services manager and a senior nurse there, went and woke them up at 5.30 a.m., alarmed with some really bad news because Liam had relapsed. Now, Chris and Joanne rushed to Liam's room, and it was full of doctors crowded around their baby. He'd suffered respiratory failure. Very suddenly, they were told. But he was breathing again. He was on a respirator. He was receiving IV fluids, which was another... You know, he'd gone backwards doing that because he'd been eating earlier. Now, the news was worse than they could have imagined. The pediatrician took them aside and explained that he'd actually suffered severe brain damage caused by a lack of oxygen. So even if he survived, he would never be the same. So this is devastating news. And at that point, the chaplain was brought in to christen him. And then Chris and Joanne met with the pediatrician to talk about his condition. So this is terrible. This is terrible. So this this infant, this little seven-week-old baby is on life support. Little pudding pants. Right. Who was energetic and happy and healthy. Yep. 
The, the doctor told the parents that their baby's brain damage was severe. He had stopped breathing for over an hour, so that ain't good. That is heartbreaking. So even, I mean, here they are resuscitating this kid, but he had been... He was pretty much dead already, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can resuscitate and get a heartbeat back. Yeah, but, but, but he was you, gone. You don't have a brain. That's awful. So the, the couple made the heartbreaking decision to take their baby off the respirator, and they did that, and he died. That's terrible. Now, there's a couple things. I mean, here, here this kid on two occasions has improved and then relapsed, and that just That's not normal, right? doesn't happen that way. Right. So, I mean, it's easy, again, to look back in retrospect, because we know how great retrospectiveness is. Yes, of course, but they, you know, the doctors were thinking with these kids, what is going on? This isn't how it works. No. Because the doctors knew. I mean, the parents and some of the other staff didn't understand how irregular this was, but the doctors knew that that's not didn't make sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. So the the nurse from the previous evening who took care of the baby was shocked when she turned returned to the ward and found out that the little boy had died. Hospital asked his heartbroken parents for permission to perform an autopsy, trying to find the cause of death, because they don't have a cause of death. I mean, they, they know that he was admitted for bronchiolitis. But as you said, if he died from that, he would have gradually gotten worse and worse had been transferred. That's why right. he was there. So they, they did an autopsy. The death certificate had specified pneumonia and possible septicemia, which is a bacterial infection of the blood as a possible cause. But the post-mortem conclusion was that Liam had suffered a heart attack. The muscles of his heart had died. Mm-hmm. Now, so what? let me tell you. Okay. Seven-week-olds don't die of heart attacks. I mean, they, they might die because their heart stopped. That's not a heart attack. The heart stops for other reasons. So it would be a secondary thing. Right. So the, the pathologist in person talked to the parents. He told Chris, the father, he didn't know what had caused the heart attack. Chris spent an hour with the pathologist but went home confused. The pediatrician was so concerned and disturbed that he wrote to the coroner. He wanted a child pathologist to perform a second postmortem. So see, we've got stuff already. Suspicions already? It's suspicious. Mean? Well, of course, yeah. This, this is a very unexpected death. Yes. But the second postmortem wasn't done. The pediatrician was really frustrated, and also he wasn't allowed to study the findings on which the original postmortem results were determined. So Chris and Joanne, they felt that they would never know what had happened to their baby on Ward 4. Now, just three days after Liam was buried, another child died on Ward 4. Timothy Hardwick, he was 11 years old, but he was just as vulnerable as a baby. He had been born with severe cerebral palsy and blindness. His life had been tragic from day one, really, because Timothy's mother, Helen, had brain surgery during her pregnancy with him, and after his birth by C-section, she suffered a stroke. Now, at first, Timothy appeared perfect, this beautiful little baby boy, but after two months, it became obvious that he wasn't developing normally. Helen wasn't able to care for Timothy at home, and he was sent to be raised at a children's home. So despite all of these hardships, which I can't even imagine how they dealt with that. No. I mean, that's a, a child with disabilities is uh, a special case. And yourself being in a wheelchair with a stroke. 
as a yeah. young woman. Yeah, how do you do that? I don't know. So Helen and her husband, they loved Timothy, though, and they did go spend quite a bit of time with him. He couldn't walk or speak, but he loved music and he loved swimming. And on March 5, 1991, he had an epileptic seizure and he was admitted to Ward 4. Overnight, his medications were adjusted and he was stabilized. Nurse Beverly Allett took over his care the next day. And then, by 6.30 p.m. that day, Timothy was dead. His cause of death was recorded as epilepsy and cerebral palsy. Well, but that's a cop-out, basically. I mean, that's... Because he'd lived with those things he'd, for he'd, years. He'd had those for years, right? Right. So, cerebral palsy doesn't kill you. And epilepsy, unless, unless you're having just continuous massive seizures, that doesn't kill you. So they, they can't put those down really a cause of death. Well, they did. I know. Okay. Now, Kaylee Desmond was 14 months old, and on March 3rd, she'd been admitted to Ward 4 for bronchiolitis. And after six days, she'd improved, and her parents were preparing to bring her home. Then she suddenly collapsed with respiratory failure. Haley was transferred to the intensive care unit at Queens Medical Center. That was about 20 miles away. And within two days, she was recovered and she was discharged to home. Now, Yik Hung Chan was the son of parents who owned a Chinese restaurant in nearby Stamford. And they called him Henry. And at two years old, he was very happy and he was active. And then on March 28th of 1991, Henry fell 20 feet from his sister's bedroom window to the patio below. Now, after he was rushed to the ER, x-rays showed that he had two skull fractures, and he was admitted to Ward 4 for observation. Is there anything you want to say about skull fractures and how dangerous they are? I could just probably think that it varies a lot, but... It does. But I, mean, I believe they were closed. The, the, okay. I mean, the, the major thing with a skull fracture is if it causes bleeding of the brain below the fracture. So if you just fracture the skull and there's nothing that looks like brain damage, he should recover pretty easily. Which I believe is the case, or they wouldn't have kept him there. No, he would have gone to a place where a neurosurgeon could evacuate the hematoma. Right, which is a bit like a bleeding area. Uh, the blood area, yeah. yeah. So if they admit him for observation, that's basically to make sure that he doesn't decompensate overnight type of thing. So this should be a quick and simple admission. And, you know, despite the fact that he dropped 20 feet, didn't look like he was severely damaged. Kids bounce is what I've always heard. <laughs> I don't know. They're kind of flexible. Sort of. Yeah. But it, <laughs> as, as long as he didn't have anything other than the linear skull fractures that didn't show any underlying brain damage, you would expect pretty full recovery. So two days later, though, his condition deteriorated. He was vomiting and sleeping a lot, and the next day, Henry had seizures. He had a fever, and he was put on IV hydration, and then Henry had a cardiac arrest. He was rushed to Queens Medical Center after he was stabilized in Nottingham, and Henry recovered quickly at Nottingham and returned home in five days. But Henry's parents believed that it was the fall and a blood clot that had almost killed their son. But later on, we'd find out it probably wasn't. Well, yeah. I mean, the, what do you the, think of that? If that, those events, do those make sense medically? No. They don't. Okay. Why not? Well, I mean, briefly. He, he got better too quickly. I mean, if, if he had a big blood clot on his brain that needed to be evacuated, he would have been sick or sicker. Right. So he gets transferred. 
he gets stabilized and he's pretty quickly back to normal again. Well, that so, makes you think there was something so, going on. So there's on. something else going on. It's it's not the fall and the, any traumatic event following the fall. Okay. Well, March had been an extraordinarily horrible month for Grantham Hospital. Several children had narrowly escaped death or died on Ward 4. Maybe the luckiest patient to survive Ward 4 was five-months-old Paul Crampton. Paul's blood tests would help investigators prove that Nurse Beverly Allett had killed her young patients, but Paul would survive. Now, Paul wasn't seriously ill either when he arrived on Ward 4, and that was on March 20th of 1991. He had a cold, he had bronchiolitis, and for three days Paul recovered. Then he took a sudden turn for the worse. Outside of the treatment room, Paul's mother Kathy heard Nurse Beverly Allett say, I think I know what's wrong with him. He's hypoglycemic. Wow. So where did she come up with that? A first hypoglycemia is... Low blood sugar, right? Okay, yeah. So I don't know why a newly graduated nurse would say, I think he's hypoglycemic. When he's there for bronchiolitis. Right. There's no reason to be hypoglycemic with that. And and again, I mean, his kid has made good progress. And, and the natural history or natural course of bronchiolitis is once you start getting better, you're going to get better quickly. So I don't know. Again, this is this, the second or third kid with bronchiolitis who was improving and then decompensated. Yes. That was all. A, well, not were, just decompensated, but boom, stop breathing. And yeah. All this and or have a heart attack. Yeah. And so that, that just doesn't go along with what you think of the, the course of bronchiolitis. Right. But Beverly was right about it, and Paul was put on a glucose drip to counteract his low blood sugar. So he had a low blood sugar. He did. So, I know, I don't want to be devil's advocate or anything, but so she, the, the nurse says, oh, I think he's hypoglycemic. They checked his blood sugar. It was low. Yes. And they corrected that. Yes. That would make you suspicious. Huh. What was she basing that on? There's no right. reason for her to base it on. No, I mean, there is There's no association between his admitting diagnosis and being hypoglycemic. No, but the parents and some other people thought, wow, she's really sharp. She's on top of yeah. things, right? <laughs> she should be a doctor. <laughs> right. He quickly was better once he was on the glucose strip, and it took hours before Paul had recovered enough to return to his regular hospital room. But over the next few days, he had two more similar attacks, and no one could understand why he was suddenly becoming, why he was suddenly becoming hypoglycemic. Now, finally, Paul was transferred to Nottingham, thank God, where he made a full recovery. But blood samples were sent away to a laboratory for analysis, so that's a good thing. On March 4, 1991, twins Becky and Katie Phillips came home from the hospital at five weeks old. And just nine days later, Katie went back to Ward 4 because she had a stomach virus. The doctor thought it was a good idea for her to be monitored, although she had a mild case of gastroenteritis, and they wanted to be sure that she didn't get dehydrated. So, you know, again, this is uh, maybe a little bit premature twin. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a little more likely to get sicker, and I can see admitting her, maybe needing some IV fluids and stuff to make sure that she doesn't get dehydrated. So that's, that doesn't sound unreasonable. The, the mother of the twins, whose name was Sue, Sue Phillips, recognized Beverly Allett from school, from high school, I guess, or whatever they call it over there. She hadn't seen her for five years and didn't know that she'd become a nurse, but Beverly gave no indication that she knew Sue. Well, that's interesting. 
Yeah, it was weird. She thought it was weird anyway. She yeah. did. So Katie stayed on Ward 4 for four days, and then she was sent home. And Becky and Katie were both sick with stomach bugs or something, and the doctor readmitted both of them to Ward 4. Hmm. And two days later, their brother James came down with a bug, too, and he was admitted. So here we have huh. the, the twins and the older sibling all admitted for dehydration on Ward 4. No, knowing what we know now, it's really scary to think that all of her kids were there. Isn't it? Scary, yeah. So on subsequent visits, Sue saw Beverly Allett several times, but Beverly never acknowledged her. Twice Beverly was seen by Sue as she cared for James and the twins, but nothing was said. After five days, the twins were sent home, but doctors still couldn't explain why they had been ill. James came home two days later, and Becky became sick again. It was decided that the hospital formula made Becky vomit, and Sue took her home. Yeah, well... I mean, that's kind of convoluted. Well, it was convoluted, because something was going on there. Yeah. Now, Beverly gave Becky a feeding before sending her home with Sue, and Beverly didn't want Sue to take Becky home either that day. She actually tried to persuade Sue to leave her in the hospital, saying that she didn't like the look of her and thought she needed to stay another night at the hospital. But now an older nurse on duty said Becky seemed fine and told Sue to go ahead and take her home, and that decision seemed to irritate Beverly. So after being home for less than an hour, Becky started to scream, and Sue would describe Becky's screams as ear-piercing. Sue's husband, Peter, father of the twins, suggested calling the doctor. But Sue said no, she didn't want to be a nuisance. She'd been calling and had her kids in a lot, and she was starting to feel like she was starting to look like a bit of a pain in the ass to people at the hospital. Well, be that as it may, the one child was admitted twice. Yes. And the other two were each admitted. Right. I mean, there's, there's some GI bug or something going on in this family. Yes, exactly. I'd call. Well, she didn't feel like she should. So she and Peter thought that Becky was probably having some severe colic. And they had a local general practitioner who came to their home. And he came around 11 p.m. that night. And Becky was given a feeding, and she did go to sleep. But then at 2.30 a.m., Becky was stirring, and Sue picked her up. And Becky seemed to be seizing, acting, you know, like moving her body in a weird way. But the couple, they had no medical knowledge. They took Becky to bed with them. And Peter didn't hear Becky breathing then, and he shouted she stopped breathing. So Peter began to give breaths to Becky. She was limp, and her lips were blue. So they raced in their car to the hospital because it was only half a mile away, and they thought that was probably going to be quicker than calling 911 and getting an ambulance. Oh, I'm sure. Now, Becky was already gone, though, when they ran into, into the emergency room carrying her. She was pronounced dead at 3.55 a.m. on April 5, 1991. She'd been home from the hospital for less than 12 hours when she died. Now, the pediatrician was afraid that Becky maybe had had meningitis, so Sue rushed home to bring Katie back to be examined, and Katie was then readmitted to Ward 4 to be observed. Now, Becky had been dead for five hours when Beverly took over Katie's care the next morning, and then Sue noticed that Beverly was behaving really differently toward her then. You know, she'd been kind of standoffish and everything before. Yeah, well, she, now Beverly... she wasn't acknowledging her, even though they were classmates. Right. So now Sue's lost a child, and her other child is there, and Beverly's behaving differently. Yeah. So for the first time, Beverly spoke to Sue. I mean, up to this point, she didn't acknowledge her at all. Right. I'm ever so sorry, Sue, Beverly said. I'm sorry that Becky died. But don't worry about Katie. She'll be fine. 
This was the first time Beverly had given any indication that she knew who Sue was. So that's weird, huh? Yeah, isn't it? Very. I mean, they, they've been through a few admissions. I mean, they, these were classmates. They should know each other. Yes, they did S know each other. Sue recognized her. She did, yep. But Beverly didn't acknowledge her. Not until anyway. then, yeah. So the police arrived to make inquiries about the sudden death. The staff was distraught and confused over the sudden onslaught of deaths on Ward 4. Absolutely so they this, were. So this is what, the third one? I mean, this is easy. Again, I, I, I love hindsight because I'm always so correct when I do this. Yes. But they've had more than one unexplained death on Ward 4. They've had at least two. I think this is three, actually, because they had Liam and Timothy. Right. Yes. So Plus they, some incidents of near death and right. transfers. So there's there's something that should be investigated. Absolutely. But it wasn't. Not to, not at this point. Well, it really never occurred to anyone that someone could purposely be hurting this ch these children. Why would anyone do that? This well, just was you, unheard of. Well, it is. All right. Let's let's say this that this was 25 years ago. Things things were worked differently then. Yes. But still. It's a small village hospital. Right. There, there should have been some investigation. I'm not saying there shouldn't have been, but I could see how it, it went uninvestigated for a while. I could see how it happened. Yeah, I can sort of. Yeah. So after a long and tortuous night on Ward 4, Peter and Sue agreed to go home at lunchtime for food and a change of clothing. Beverly told Sue that she would look after Katie. That's yeah. nice of her. They were home just half an hour when their phone rang. A man calling from the hospital told Peter that Katie was having trouble breathing and they wanted to get one of them back to the hospital as soon as possible. Isn't this awful? I mean, it is very suspicious looking at it now, of course. You know, it didn't it didn't sound like an emergency to the couple at the time. Sue and her father were going to the undertakers that day to make arrangements yeah. for Becky's funeral. Yeah, they have to bury one child. Isn't that awful? They have that going on. Uh -huh. So I and, can't and even then, imagine then this how they're happens. dealing with it. No. So Peter, he went to the hospital alone to check on her. And when Peter arrived, though, he was shocked to see that Katie was on um, a resuscitator. Now, resuscitator is an English word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So that would be a... A breathing machine. Right. So we would call it... A ventilator. Ventilator. Thank you. Thanks for feeding me that. <laughs> so Sister Jean Seville was caring for her. That's the older nurse. Yeah. More older, experienced nurse who had been involved in, I think, the first incident. Yeah. She'd had to deal with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. You know. Now, the next day, Katie had another episode of apnea when in Beverly Allett's care. And they were really appreciative that Beverly had reacted quickly and saved their daughter Katie's life. Beverly and Sue became close friends then. Three days later, Katie stopped breathing again, and this time she went without oxygen for 22 minutes. How uh, bad is that? That's really bad. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to, if if you're anoxic or without oxygen for that length of time, you're going to suffer pretty severe brain damage. And that's what happened later on. That's what, that's what happened she, to her. We actually know now that Katie had severe brain damage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ward 4 had been a happy place prior to this bad run, as some people called it. And nurses had really enjoyed working on this ward because this is a place where sick children got better and went home. The seriously ill kids were taken to Nottingham Hospital, and not much happened at the small Grantham Hospital 
until, you know, February 1991, all these things started happening. Right. Yeah, that's the nice thing about pediatrics. Kids can get sick, but they almost always get better. Right. So that's that's why we love it. And especially in a small community hospital like this. Absolutely. So this is distinctly out of the norm. And I think it's starting to be realized, maybe, that something is seriously wrong here. But after the deaths of Liam Taylor, Timothy Hardwick, and Becky Phillips, many of the staff were really having difficulty coping with this. I'm sure they were. Now, five-year-old Bradley Gibson was the next victim on Ward 4. He was admitted for pneumonia, and he suffered a massive heart attack. Now, this is a five-year-old. Yeah. That doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. I mean, there's no history of congenital heart disease of any kind. He was a healthy kid who had a heart attack at age five. Right. He was there for pneumonia. That boggles the mind. But the doctors and nurses on Ward 4, they saved Bradley's life, and the parents were really thrilled that their son had been saved, and they praised the crash team for the miraculous work, which is great, but it's just not a normal thing that happened. (laughs) Not in the least. So the cause of the heart attack eluded doctors. And then two-month-old Christopher Peacegood was next. He was admitted to Ward 4 on April 13th with bronchiolitis. And when Beverly Allett came to give Christopher a breathing treatment, she suggested that his parents take a break, go out for a drink or a cigarette, and she would look after him. And they were grateful. Yeah, reassured they left the ward for about 10 minutes, and then when they returned, and we're talking only 10 minutes, the crash team was rushing towards their son's room. Christopher was blue, and doctors were working to resuscitate him. Now, by mid-afternoon, his condition was stable. And Beverly went and made tea for the parents. It was decided that Christopher should be transferred to Nottingham. And three days later, after going there, he recovered and went home, had a normal course of getting well, like like he should have. So here's here's another kid who improved when transferred. Yes, had a normal course of improvement. Right. So after Christopher's transfer, seven-week-old Patrick Elstone was admitted to Ward 4. So like most parents, Hazel and Robert Elstone were nervous, but they trusted the doctors and the nurses to take care of their baby. Patrick and his twin brother Anthony were their only children. Patrick had a cold and he wasn't feeding well, so as a precaution, the general practitioner decided to have him observed in Ward 4. But on the third day of Patrick's hospital stay, Hazel left at 2 p.m. to take Anthony for his checkup. Now, when Robert, a taxi driver, phoned at 8 p.m. to check on their son, he was told by a nurse that they'd been trying to reach them. Patrick had been acting up, they said, and the nurse said that he should come straight to the ward. So Hazel, she bundled up Anthony, and they rushed back to the hospital. And on arrival, they were shocked to hear that Patrick had gone into respiratory failure. So here we have another unexpected outcome. Yeah. So Hazel saw Patrick with a doctor holding a tube down his throat, and he was pale as a sheet. She couldn't understand. When she left that afternoon, he'd been smiling, he'd been cooing. So he was transferred to Nottingham, where he recovered and was home in two days. So now, finally, the Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham is beginning to question the high number of seriously ill children who are arriving from Grantham Hospital Ward 4. Five children had been rushed to Nottingham for specialized care in less than two months. So 
this is more than they would normally expect in a whole year. No kidding. They usually get a couple so, a year. So there's something going on. They're suspicious. Yes. So finally, it's, it's come to their attention that something's not right. Absolutely. So now we have an account of Liam Taylor, Timothy Hardwick, and Becky Phillips who had died. We've got Kaylee Desmond, Peter Crampton, Bradley Gibson, Henry Chan, Katie Phillips, Christopher Peasgood, Christopher King, and Patrick Elstone, who had been near death. This is all in less than two months. Right. So this is boom, boom, this, boom, right in succession. This, this is a huge spike in the equation. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like she's crying out for people to notice. Exactly. But despite all this, Ward 4 was still open. So, I mean, I, I guess before you start thinking that there's some killer nurse or physician or something. Nobody thought that at all. Not for a while. But maybe you're thinking there's something in the, the hospital that's causing deaths. Well, yeah, I think they thought maybe there's an illness. Yeah. Like something contagious or... Something in the... Mislabeled medication. Well, maybe. Or something like in the ventilating units or something. Legionnaires, like legionnaires cases. yeah, they did I mean, consider that. There's lots of things. But the, the ward remained open. After the death of Claire Peck, things began to change. Yeah, so who was Claire Peck? Claire was an only child, 15 months old. She was admitted to the ward on April 22nd. She had asthma. Their family doctor said that 24 hours would bring about a complete recovery. Which, yeah, I mean, a kid with asthma who needs hospitalization, you say we're going to get him stabilized and out the next day. It's easy. Claire's mother, Sue, would always remember the bewildered pediatric specialist four hours later when Claire died on Ward 4. So here's another death. Yes. And, and an unexplained death. When they had arrived on the ward, nurses put Claire on a nebulizer to clear her airways. Within 30 minutes, she was better. So here's this, that same familiar story, that she had improved pretty quickly and things were heading in the right direction. Which you would expect with asthma. Yeah. The correct medication. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you do the bronchodilators, you maybe do some steroids for anti-inflammatory action, and they improve rapidly. So Claire continued to improve over the next two days. Her doctor said that she was asthmatic to a slight degree. So what we call now mild persistent asthma. Sinclair home to continue on a course of a bronchodilator called Ventolin and an inhaler as needed. Next night at home, Claire woke up coughing at 1.45 in the morning. She recovered with use of her inhaler, played with her toys for a while, and went back to sleep. Next morning, Sue brought Claire back to Ward 4. I'm not exactly sure why if she had gotten better, but maybe because she had the asthma episode. She wanted to make sure she was okay. Yeah, she just had a, an episode, and she wasn't used to dealing with that at home, I believe. Yeah, it's still new stuff. Right, it, right. It She's be, only 15 months old. Right, it can be pretty scary. Of course it can. So Claire was put back on a nebulizer, or put on a nebulizer. Didn't work. Doctors intubated Claire and gave her another medication while she was out. Nurse Beverly Allard stayed with Claire. So we've got this kid who's with got asthma, who's not responding as you'd expect. Mm -hmm. You've got this nurse taking care of her. 
Within seconds of being in the care of Nurse Alec, Claire went into respiratory failure. Beverly yelled from the treatment room, Arrest! Arrest! Staff worked to revitalize Claire, but she died that night. So, geez. Right. She goes in for her asthma episode. She improves. She goes home. She gets readmitted because she flared back up again, and she dies. Well, Claire's parents were devastated, but they believed that they'd lost their daughter to asthma. Now, their pediatrician, who had worked so hard to resuscitate Claire, seemed totally bewildered by Claire's death. He said that she should never have died. He told Claire's parents that her death had been a one-in-a-million chance, a freak event that he couldn't explain. In his opinion, a child should not die from asthma while they're being treated in the hospital. It just didn't happen. No, it doesn't. Now, it was Sue Peck's parents, Claire's grandparents, who began to ask questions about Claire's death. Sue's father overheard nurses talking about it. One nurse said, not another one. They had no idea, of course, that three other children had also recently died. Then, when he went to the coroner's office to pick up the death certificate, he heard a receptionist say, crikey, not another one. There's been a lot of them at Grantham Hospital lately. Crikey. Yeah, she must have been Australian. A particular idiom. (laughs) Well... This is a devastating thing for any family, of course. Well, I can't comprehend. I mean, every single one of these kids that died was an unexpected death. Yes. I mean, they they had been stable or improving, looking good, and boom, they're dead. Right, right. So I can't imagine. So it's getting very suspicious. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they're looking at some chronic long-term illness that caused death. Right, right. Tough one. Well, the pathologist's report listed asthma as Claire's cause of death, but the pediatrician at Grantham had taken a blood sample from Claire, thankfully, because he suspected at this point that something was really wrong. Maybe not that someone was doing something, but maybe that there was something in the hospital, like something that was making people ill. Yeah, I can see that. And and there are a couple pediatricians that were like the ward doctors, so they were always in the hospital. They were like pediatric hospitalists. And they would be the ones that would be able to connect all these illnesses and deaths. And it's not making any sense to them. None at all. So Maurice Stonebridge Foster was the coroner's officer. So if there was any death that was not natural, the coroner would hold a public inquest. And it was his or her job to prepare the evidence, organize the witnesses and medical experts, and comfort relatives. So when the team of detectives moved into the Grantham Hospital on May 1, 1991, they were so discreet that they weren't noticed by most people. First, they asked opinions of the two chief pediatricians, who you just mentioned, and that was Dr. Nelson Porter and Dr. Cherith Sena Nanayakara. I hope I said that close to right. (laughs) Who knows? I couldn't even begin to pronounce that. Well, I've heard it pronounced in documentaries I watched, and I think that was close. But anyway, Dr. Porter said that something untoward was happening, but Dr. Nana Yakara wasn't so sure. So the hospital had already done checks and swabbed the ward for infections and outbreaks, but Dr. Porter already seemed certain that someone at the hospital had tampered with the children. So interestingly, he'd recently attended a conference where they talked about parents tampering with their children. And he was worried that the number of sick children and sudden deaths meant that there was criminal activity on the unit. 
So he's starting to get an idea. So he suggested that the hospital install some video cameras in each room. But the, they didn't do that. But they did install a camera into the entrance and exit of the unit, which oh, didn't really do any good. That's a big fucking help. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think they were looking for some kind of outsider. They weren't thinking it was someone that worked there at that point. Well, still. Yes. I mean, that's... that's Wasn't helpful. No. Not in the least. No. Police interviewed parents of all the children involved, and most of them believed that their children had actually been very well cared for. For three weeks, they examined hospital records, and there'd been 24 separate incidents in 60 days where children had had cardiac arrest, respiratory failure, and heart attacks. Now, the most encouraging lead was the blood test results from Paul Crampton. His blood sugar levels had dropped so low that he had almost died three times while on Ward 4. Yeah, he ended up being transferred to the Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham, where his blood was tested. So it tests revealed a higher than normal level of insulin, which was way higher than normal. Yes, outrageously high. So the hospital did a second check where the level had dropped, but a sample taken when he first arrived had been sent out to Cardiff University for detailed analysis. The results were shocking. His insulin level had been over 500 and somewhere above that because they couldn't measure with their equipment beyond that. Right. So he had been given a massive dose of insulin, and they knew that. There's a couple ways of testing this. Okay. I'm okay. Just, I know you're going to hate me for this, but I just want to say that Dick is actually an endocrinologist as well as a pediatrician. He specialized in endocrinology, and he's been shaking his head, but... Just so you know that, yeah, you know, I just want them to know that you do have good knowledge on this and you're going to explain it just a little bit. Well, it's a very simple explanation. Okay. So here they've measured his insulin level and it was sky high. So what makes a elevated insulin level? And sky high, you mean like? Way higher than you'd expect. Okay. So not just moderately high. No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's hugely elevated. So maybe he has a tumor that produces insulin, which is not terribly uncommon. I mean, it's it's rare, but it happens. Uh, or he'd been given insulin. Now, here's the easy way to tell the difference, and it's it's very elegant and simple. Okay. So insulin is secreted by the pancreas, obviously. Maybe not obviously. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the pancreas makes insulin. Okay. Which is what? What takes care of your blood sugar? Manages your blood sugar. So insulin is secreted initially as a pro-hormone. So it's insulin and another peptide or protein called C-peptide. Okay, let's not get too All right. detailed here. I'm keep trying it not simple. To. I'll keep it simple. So, <laughs> so before insulin gets secreted, it's combined with protein called C-peptide. Okay, and it's connected by uh, sulfide bridges. So oh, jeez. All right. I'm losing people. <laughs> so okay. anyway, what happens is when insulin gets released, the protein bridges are, or the sulfide bridges are cleaved, and you're left with insulin and C-peptide. Okay. Okay? All right. Does that make it clear? I'm trying to do this. Maybe I should start over. No, go ahead. So if, if you measure an insulin level that's elevated, you measure a C-peptide level. Okay. Okay. So, so if it's insulin that's secreted by the body, 
you're going to have a comparable elevation in C-peptide. Okay. Because they go together. That makes sense. They rejoin. Yes, right. And if the insulin level is high but the C-peptide is low, then somehow this kid got insulin injected. And that was the case with... And that's what they figured out. With Paul Crampton's blood. So this is proof that he'd been given a massive dose of insulin. Okay. No other explanation. There, There is absolutely no other explanation. Someone had to give him insulin. Someone had to give him insulin because his C-peptide levels were normal. Which was very important to this case. Absolutely. So the, the remainder of the blood was sent to the laboratory at Guildford, and they measured even higher levels. The <laughs> result was mind-boggling. Well, I think the first lab could only measure to 500 or something. Right. And but, but he had over 43,000 milliliters of insulin per liter. I mean, and just this, give... this kid had been given a massive overdose. Well, someone had said that it was equal to... Um, a 10-milliliter syringe full of insulin being injected into this small child's body. That sounds reasonable. Which I, is outrageous. I, I wouldn't begin to speculate on how much was given. Right. Just that it was a massive amount to yeah. be able to do what, what it did. Yes. So it was outrageous. So the insulin on Ward 4 was actually kept in a locked refrigerator, and it was discovered that the key to that refrigerator had gone missing. So all of the nurses were questioned, and since the police had begun their investigation, it was interesting that no more children had collapsed or died on the ward. So Beverly Allett had mentioned that she had given the key to a nurse when she last had it, because she was the last one recorded to have it, but she couldn't remember which nurse. So that's really suspicious. (laughs) Please. And she works with these people. She knows who's who. It's a small place. Yeah. Yeah. So each of the events were reviewed and compared Uh, with the schedule of nurse assignments, and the name of Beverly Allett appeared in each of the 24 incidents that were reviewed as far as nurses on duty at the time. So Beverly was arrested on the morning of June 3rd, so that's five weeks after the investigation had begun, and she was held in a jail cell and questioned for two days. Beverly appeared oddly calm and denied that she was to blame. She was released from jail, but then she remained on extended leave from her job. They didn't let her come back to work, so. Well, that's fortunate. Yeah, really. (laughs) Thankfully for that. Jeez. I mean, again, I'm looking at the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, but still. But this should have been stopped sooner. It seems like it. Now, Sue and Peter Phillips, parents of the twins, Becky and Katie, so they'd lost their daughter, Becky, and Katie had got brain damage. But they didn't know that at the time. They believed that Beverly had really saved Katie's life, and they loved Beverly. And they actually asked Beverly to be Katie's godmother. So Beverly agreed to that, and after Katie came home from the hospital, Beverly began visiting the Phillips at their home. Eventually, she mentioned to Sue the police investigation on Ward 4, but not until it had been going on for a while and she'd already been suspended. But Sue never suspected Beverly of any wrongdoing. She was convinced that Beverly was innocent. So Sue and Peter were so sure that the police were wrong that they even offered to pay the bill for the private investigators in gratitude for saving Katie's life. So from the age of 12, Beverly Allett, she was so sure she wanted to be a nurse. Absolutely positive about what she wanted to do. But not just any nurse. She wanted to be a pediatric nurse and take care of children. She was a chubby little girl with short blonde hair. Her love of children, where she grew up in Corby Glen, 
was well known to everyone. She was a popular choice for babysitting in the neighborhood, and she would even spend her own free time playing with kids and taking them for walks. Yeah. I mean, she was a popular babysitter. Neighbors saw her easy way with her children. They trusted her. She seemed to have a happy, normal childhood, never rebellious or in trouble. She grew up in an intact family. Her mother, father, younger brother Darren, sisters Donna and Allison. While a college student, Beverly worked at a job in the village store. So everything sounds okay. Sure. The village, <laughs> the village of Corby Glen, where Beverly grew up, was set in the heart of sheep farming country. About 450 people lived in the village. Small place. So this is a small place, isn't everybody it? Everybody knew everybody, right? So everybody knew each other. And it wasn't uncommon for Beverly to bring home children, toddlers, even babies. When she visited her grandmother on Sundays, it was normal for her to bring along a neighbor's child. So this, this woman has woven her way into the fabric of the community. She is a trusted child carer. And everybody likes her. But there's something weird about her. Well, yeah. Yeah. Even back then, there's something weird. Beverly's family had been delighted when she was recently realized her life, when she had recently realized her lifelong ambition to become a pediatric nurse. Wow. So years of training, studying, exams, duty on the geriatric ward. Yeah, she worked with old people for a while first. Because she had to. She was living her dream. Yes. She's a pediatric nurse. That's right. That's what she wanted. Yeah. Now, I would submit that all this stuff in her earlier days was an indication of things to come. She was more interested in kids than I would have expected a person her age to be. Seems a little odd. It even sends back little shades of Lacey Spears to me. Yeah. Who loved to babysit, would babysit for free and all that. Yeah. It's it a little similar to me. So she was she was odd to me. And she did have a fiance, Stephen Biggs. They met at the local pub back in nineteen eighty seven. Now Beverly, she was a bit overweight and quite plain. She never bothered much with makeup or fashionable clothes. But she was um she was cute enough and he was really taken with her immediately. Now, Steve was shy. He was soft-spoken. He worked on as a road worker. And during the course of their relationship, he was very dominated by Beverly's strong personality. So Steve would remember that Beverly bullied him. If she wasn't happy with something he said or did, she would punch him or knee him in the groin even. Oh, jeez. Yeah. She often complained about sex with him. She didn't like it. And once he found Beverly holding hands with another woman... So he began to wonder if Beverly was more interested in women than men. You know, once he got the courage even to ask her if she was a lesbian. But Beverly denied it. But looking back, Steve would recall stories Beverly had told him in order to get his attention or his sympathy. In fact, when he just started dating Beverly, she told him stories of obsessive and abusive boyfriends who continued to stalk her. But he never saw any proof that that was actually happening in her life. These were things I think she just said to get more attention and sympathy from him. Yeah. I mean, she needed to be the center of attention. Right. Absolutely. And she often came up with odd injuries or illnesses that took her to the emergency room. Yes. So this is a big red here, flag. Here we're seeing some pattern here. 
So I'd say she had Munchausen syndrome. Yes. Which I know we just talked about last week, so we don't have to go We've... into it too much. Hopefully people have listened to last week's, but... Yeah, but, you know, just very quickly, Munchausen syndrome is feigning illness to gain attention, basically. Right. Or actually hurting yourself or making yourself or, ill. Right. Yes. But you, your centerfold thing is to be getting attention. From the medical community especially. Right. So I, I think she was doing that. I mean, she she was in the hospital or the emergency room or seeking medical attention frequently. And I read somewhere that she had missed a lot of nursing school time for illnesses. Yes, right. So meanwhile, the, the Phillips, the parents of the twins who had the one die and the other one who barely survived, they became very friendly with Beverly after their daughter Becky's death, and they were one of the last couples to learn of the extent of her crimes. Yeah, they'd really kind of taken her in as had, almost part of their family. Be Beverly had told them that only Paul Crampton's case was under investigation, which is not true, obviously. Mm -hmm. Police told the couple in June that they were investigating the death of their daughter Becky and the illness, illness of her twin Katie. They were informed that blood taken from Becky revealed markedly elevated insulin levels also. So they were thinking Becky had been murdered. Well, they're pretty sure she'd been murdered because, there's, like you said, there was no reason for her to have high insulin levels. Nope. Yes. So exposed to the Phillips now and desperate for a place to hide from the media, Beverly met, moved in with a friend's mother on the outskirts of Peterborough. And the friend's mother is Eileen Jobson. Yes. So she's under suspicion. She has to get out of town, basically. Well, the media the media's out there after her, yeah. Yeah. So she's so, trying to kind so of go into hiding. going in the underground. Well, during Beverly's four months living with Eileen Jobson, strange incidents began to occur. So curtains in the bathroom were found with burn marks as if someone had attempted to set them on fire. Then a knife from a kitchen drawer was found pierced through Miss Jobson's bed pillow. That's really <laughs> threatening and weird. Really scary. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. Now also money went missing. And I also read that um, when she was in nursing school, money would go missing from some of her fellow nursing students' purses. Among other things. I mean, yeah. Like, not not just missing objects, but strange things happening. Oh, sure. Well, in, in her nursing school room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about it. Well, no, I'm talking about when she was at Mrs. Jobson right now. There was actually bleach spilled on the carpet and on a bed. And when Beverly was asked about these things, she insisted that she had nothing to do with them. No. I, this is just horrible. She even suggested that a poltergeist had taken over the house and well, was doing these things. Of course. So then things took a really frightening turn when Mrs. Jobson's Jack Russell Terrier Jack, original name, yeah, <laughs> coughed up two tablets in the backyard. So he'd gotten some pills from somebody. And Beverly, who'd been alone in the house, ran outside as Mrs. Jobson arrived home and she said, Come quickly, Jack's ill. So she just seems to be creating all these dramas. And she'd actually pointed out the knife in the pillow. So she's the one actually finding these things and pointing them out as well. 
but Mrs. Jobson didn't connect this behavior to the events at the hospital. She just believed that maybe Beverly was under stress and was, you know, having this behavior because she was so stressed out about things. Well, I mean, that's kind of burying your head in the sand. Seems to be a lot of that. Right? Yeah. Then one day while Beverly was out at the Sunday open-air market with Miss Jobson and her son Jonathan, the healthy 15-year-old boy suddenly collapsed. Yeah. So what's going on here? He showed no signs of life lying on the ground in front of Beverly. She did nothing to help as Mrs. Jobson screamed for help. So this reminds so, me of Beverly back in the hospital when she just stood there with her arms crossed. Right. Exactly. And she's a nurse. She knows CPR. Right. So she should have been jumping on him and trying to help him. Yeah, she didn't. Nope. But still, Mrs. Jobson didn't hold it against her, really. Right. Not yet. Jonathan was rushed to the hospital and revived pretty quickly. Thank goodness. He had had a glass of black currant before they left for the market, but they weren't suspicious. He actually joked with Beverly that night, saying, what would the police say if you're living here in my collapsing? <laughs> How prescient. Mrs. Jobson didn't tell anyone about the strange things that have been happening. Now, See, that surprised me. Why the hell me. not? I don't know. I think at that point she probably should have, especially once her son collapsed, I think I that would be where I'd draw oh, the line and say, hey, man. You're, you need to get help. Yeah, I mean, I know... That Beverly is her daughter's good friend and roommate and stuff, but still. But by now you know there's something wrong with something her. Something is seriously wrong. And here. if she's putting your child at risk, holy cow. But she felt a sense of loyalty. However, she finally was prevailed upon by family members to call the police. Yeah. And police interviewed her, and they were stunned to hear what Beverly Allen had been up to. Sure. Well, yeah. You think no she'd have kidding. been lying low, but she wasn't. No, she was getting more and more blatant, wasn't she? But does that make us think, oh, gee, maybe it's an illness and she just couldn't stop herself? Well, I don't know. How do you feel about that idea? I think she's mentally ill. Yes. And, and maybe this stuff was beyond her control. As easy as it is to hate her, I know, but... Well, I don't know about beyond her control, but she wasn't under control. No. Well, she finally went and returned to live with her parents, and her father's employer, wine merchant Jeremy Marshall Roberts, gave her a job. And they were so certain of her innocence that he actually hired her to babysit his young children as well. Now, Dr. Nelson Porter, the Grantham Hospital pediatrician, had spoken to police about the possibility that Beverly Allett had Munchausen by proxy syndrome. So he was the first one to bring this up. Police hadn't heard of it. Now, research indicated that nurses with this condition could attack children they were caring for. Now, police knew from former fiancé Stephen Biggs that Beverly had once purposely injured her finger by jamming it into a faucet tap. They also knew that she was a frequent patient in the hospital with what seemed to be self-inflicted injuries. There were other reports of oddities in her past. In the nurse's dorm where she'd stayed, human feces had been found smeared on communal doors and in the refrigerator, of all places. And on beds. Ugh. So, several days after the feces incident, the fire department was called, too, when the dorm had filled with smoke. The grill of the cooker had been left on and had burst into flames, 
but Beverly had never been suspected. So looking back on Beverly's past, police learned more strange details. As a child, Beverly had been prone to fractures and sprains. School friends recalled that she was always in bandages. During her nursing training, she'd been out sick so often that her time had to be extended. At one point, she injured her wrist, and when she ignored medical advice to go to her PT appointments, the provider had written a note complaining that she was unfit to be a nurse. Now, while out on bail, Beverly returned to the hospital with complaints of a urinary problem, and she was fitted with a catheter, and then the catheter broke. I have no idea how that would happen. It doesn't. Not, not, <laughs> not in any normal circumstances. Unintentionally. Right. She was kept in a Petersboro hospital where staff noticed that she was well during the day, but she got a fever every night and felt unwell at night. And then also she had these painful breasts, which they found out were manufactured illness as well. Yeah, it was determined that she had deliberately injected her breasts with water using a syringe. Yeah. So that will give you a mastitis or an infection. She's really ill. Claire Peck's parents, David and Sue, learned more about the suspicious suspicions surrounding their daughter's death by reading the paper. They followed up with police, finally learning that Claire had died from an overdose of potassium chloride. So it wasn't just the insulin? No. I mean, potassium chloride is something that will cause rhythm problems with the heart and basically make the heart stop beating. Right. I think so they use it in lethal injection. They do. Yeah. So if you give a sufficient amount, you can die. Right. Timothy Hardwick's parents also learned that he had been murdered with a potassium chloride overdose. So we got two kids with potassium chloride. We got a kid with insulin. This is just a real clusterfuck. No isn't kidding. It? This is dreadful. So on Friday, September 20th, which is two weeks after the police file accusing Beverly Allett had been sent to the prosecutor's office, night services manager and senior nurse Sister Seville committed suicide. Now that's very sad. It is. Because she was a good nurse. She was a caring person. Yeah. But she's, she's thinking that she should have recognized it. She's she feeling was. so guilty. She was. She was racked with guilt. Husband said that she couldn't live with the anguish that she had been on duty when the murders of children had happened. She has never been suspected of any wrongdoing. Right. So but, she but was, she was the one in charge, so she's feeling like she should have recognized she it. She was, but even after, in her suicide note, she was afraid that people would take her suicide as a sign that she had been involved. Yeah, sure. And she tried to explain that she wasn't. So obviously she was a woman who was really tortured by this whole thing. Well, I mean, wouldn't you be? She'd been a bit of a mentor to Beverly. Yeah, and she finds out that her student is a killer. Yeah. And she didn't pick up on it or do anything about it. I can see that guilt. Right, of course. Well, Beverly was charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of causing grievous, bo grievous bodily harm. She entered pleas of not guilty to all charges. On May 28, 1993, she was found guilty on each charge, and she was sentenced to 13 concurrent terms of life imprisonment. Now, in August 2006, Allett appealed the length of her sentence, but her appeal was denied. And if you'd like to read more about this case, I'm going to recommend a book called Angel of Death 
by John Askill and Martin Sharp, which we used for a lot of our research here. It was a great book. Very, very detailed. Although I, I don't like this title, actually. Well, actually, I put the explanation of it in our intro. I don't know if you did you hear the intro? I did hear that. Okay. Well, it's kind of, um, it's, it's the opposite of Angel of Mercy. That's where they get it from. Yeah. So Angel is not calling her an angel. It's saying that she was not of mercy, which is the title of this podcast, No Mercy. She is the angel of death. Of death. Yeah. But, but sure, I just think it's okay not to like it. Too often you hear angel. Yes. That's the first word. Mm-hmm. And you think, good thoughts. <laughs> okay. Because it's an angel. Sure. So. So you don't like that. So you like our title better? I do. Okay. Thank you. So it is important to note, though, that there were other suspicious deaths surrounding Beverly, which were, some were added at the prosecutorial stage. One was Michael Davidson, who was a seven-year-old. He was hospitalized for a 22 pellet wound to his abdomen. He had surgery, he was recovering, and he died of a cardiac arrest. Allett had given the doctor a syringe to give to him, which was supposed to be an antibiotic, right before his death. So it's believed that she may have been responsible for that. Yeah, because, again, we have a kid who was recovering nicely and died suddenly. Yes. Now, also Jonathan Jobson, who was the 15-year-old that she lived with for a while, who collapsed on a shopping trip. Yeah. And there was also Dorothy Lowe, who was a 79-year-old, who was at an elderly home and died suddenly while in Beverly's care. So she wasn't convicted for um, attempted murder or causing grievous bodily harm to Jonathan or Dorothy due to a lack of evidence. But she was convicted on all of the other counts. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I bet if they had done more work, they would have been able to convict her on those other counts. Possibly. Maybe they felt at this point that she was never getting out of prison. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So she's actually on a mental health unit. That's a locked-up mental health unit, not just a person, which I well, think is appropriate. When you look at the whole picture, she's a sick person. She is a sick person, and if she hadn't killed other people, I'd have some sympathy for her for what she did to herself. But the fact that she killed all these other people makes her very hateable. Absolutely. So before we do feedback, Dick, I'd like to thank our listeners, because they give us a lot of support for True Crime Brewery. We get support in a variety of ways. First, we have our tie grabbers, as I like to call them, or our team tie grabber members. And for $2 a month, $3 a month, or even $5 a month, these members, they get unfettered access to members-only premium full-length TCB episodes. And members also get a little gift for joining, and it's a sticker, a credit card-sized bottle opener, or a snifter, depending on the contribution. Yeah, I have to say, I really like the bottle opener. I know. It's it comes cool, in so isn't it? handy. <laughs> you never know when I get the urge to open a bottle. It's so much better than remember you used to have the one on your keychain? Yeah. That was ugly and a pain in the ass. But this is it a was. nice neat it's a nice little item. Stick it in my wallet and boom. You can also purchase the bottle opener at our store by clicking on Shop the Brewery at Tigerabber dot com. You hey. can buy merchandise, you can buy T shirts. We've got snifters. We have a new shipment of snifters, so we're ready to go with those. And we also have stickers and coasters, lots of cool stuff. You want it, we got it. <laughs> also, five-star reviews on iTunes are very helpful. 
as is subscribing to us on iTunes. And we also encourage everyone listening who shops on Amazon to just take a click on Shop Amazon and Support Tie Grabber on tiegrabber.com, and this will take you to Amazon. And doing it this way gives us a small percentage of the profits from Amazon. And just to let you know, we have some great stuff coming up in our True Crime Brewery Members Only episodes. We have our four-part series on the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman coming out this summer. And we're going to give comprehensive and hopefully pretty entertaining coverage of this. And it's it's possibly the crime of the century, wouldn't you say? It's a big, big deal. It, it is a big deal. I mean, maybe crime of the century is a little hyperbolic, but... No, I think, you know, if you go with media-wise and everything that's come of it, um, it's the crime of the century, media-wise. Okay. I'm with you. Not saying that the deaths of these people are any more important than any other crimes. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying media-wise, the race factor, the domestic violence factor, it's probably the most hyped-up crime, the most stuff out there on it, right? Well, I would certainly acknowledge that there's more stuff written about him and oh, his absolutely. trial than I've even come to recognize. So, well, yeah. You know, as most of our listeners know, we visited Brentwood a little while back and we got some first-hand accounts of how the crime affected the people in that community. We did. And since then, I've been reading these books on the crime. There's so many. I mean, everyone that had anything to do with it wrote a book. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I mean, I've read If He Did It, which was kind of O.J.'s confession book, right, where he kind of says, if I did it, this is what I would have done. Yeah, and he describes it perfectly. Yeah, and that one, I did the Audible book on it, and it's actually an O.J. impersonator, so it sounds like O.J.'s telling you. <laughs> it's it's an amazing thing to listen to. I've also read The Run of His Life and Another City Not My Own, So, and there's plenty more books to go, so yeah. that's going to be fascinating. Also, I, I there, think so. It's going to be a good series. Sure. There are also two series com- currently available through streaming on this case the um oj made in america from espn that's an excellent it's an excellent series which i'm watching for the second time now and then there's american crime story the people versus oj simpson on netflix which is excellent right so just an enormous amount of material on that case that we're trying to put together for a very comprehensive four-part series this summer for team tiger rubber members only so i hope you'll get on board for that because i think it's going to be really Interesting. I think it's going to be one of our best episodes. It's going to be four of our best episodes. Okay. There's going to be four. I of was them. <laughs> I was counting it as a single one with components. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's get to feedback. Okay. A little music and there we go. All right. What do we got?
Welcome to Feedback. So I have um, a message from Kathleen on Facebook, and this is an article she forwarded to me with five theories about what happened to Madeline McCann. So this is from our episode, I believe it was called What Happened to Madeline McCann, or The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. Right. Yeah. And, and we're of the theory that the parents were involved. Yeah. So it's been 10 years since the disappearance of three-year-old Madeline from a vacation apartment at a resort in southern Portugal as her parents were eating at a nearby restaurant. And there was a lot of talk about, was it okay to go eat and leave the kids over there? A lot of talk about that. But here are the five theories. I'm going to read those. So one was stolen to sell. One theory is that Madeline could have been stolen by traffickers for a childless couple. Her two-year-old twin siblings were left undisturbed in the apartment. If you were stealing on spec, you would have taken one of the twins, not both, just one. So it goes back to the specific order of a young blonde girl. Has a young blonde girl died and their parents want to replace her? Or is there another reason for stealing to order? I don't think that's a good theory. <laughs> another one. No, I mean, if, if you subscribe to that theory, yes, that means that they've been observed for a while. Right. Which is, you know, I don't have a problem with that necessarily. Well... I do. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, why why that particular resort and why that family? Sure. So, I mean, there's there's too many what ifs. Okay. Well, it's still possible, I guess. I I would give my old story of possible but not probable. Okay. The second one is burglary gone wrong. Madeline could have been taken and possibly killed by thieves after she woke up and disturbed them during a burglary. Carlos Anos, the former head of Portuguese Police Officers Union, told the BBC's Panorama program that the burglary theory is absurd. He added, not even a wallet disappeared, no television disappeared, nothing else disappeared, a child disappeared. Yeah, I'm with him. I don't think that's likely. The burglary. No, how how much does a three-year-old disturb you? Three-year-olds usually sleep like, like right. a brick. Plus, they're not going to be good witnesses, right? No. I mean, so... You can leave them. Say there was someone burglarizing. Burg stealing. Stealing. <laughs> um, I wouldn't worry about a three-year-old. No. I'd worry about a 10-year-old identifying right. me. Right. So, theory number three is abducted by pedophiles. One line of investigation by Portuguese detectives is whether Madeline was snatched by a pedophile ring based in the region. In 2014, police in the United Kingdom revealed that a 10-year-old British girl was sexually assaulted in Praia de Luz in 2005, two years after Madeline's disappearance from the same resort town. Nine sexual assaults of British girls ages 6 to 12 were reported in Scotland Yard in the area in the three years before Madeline disappeared. Now, the Telegraph reported that. And an Irish couple told police that they saw a man carrying a child who fitted Madeline's description near the apartment on the night of her disappearance, and the man has never been found. Okay, so I think our theory was that it was the father carrying her. Right, that's what we thought. Yeah, so that's definitely a possibility. And another theory was that maybe she had wandered off by herself. Madeline could have woken up and left the apartment to look for her parents. Now, Mark but she, she couldn't get out, could she? I don't know. She's three. If the door's locked, she could get out. Yeah, okay. So, 
Um, she could have gone to look for her appearance. Mark William Thomas, a former police officer and, officer and investigative journalist, told the UK broadcaster ITV, I think Maddie was aware that there, were top, there was a tapas bar in the resort. In order to get to the bar, you have to come out of the premises, walk on a public road, and go back in again. Some media have speculated that Madeline might have been killed in an accident. Now, Danny Collins, another investigative journalist, thinks Madeline left the apartment in search of her parents and was abducted and possibly sold, the son reported. The last theory listed here was abducted by the parents, and it says that this theory was discounted. So Portuguese police suspected that Madeline's parents, Kate and Gary McCann, were suspected of involvement early in the investigation. Former lead investigator Goncalo Amaral, and I'm sorry for that pronunciation, who was fired in October 2007, claimed in a 2008 book, The Truth of the Lie, that Madeline died in an accident in the apartment and her parents then faked her abduction. The McCanns were official suspects until July 2008 when the Portuguese Attorney General said there was no evidence to link them to, link them to Madeline's disappearance. Portuguese police have been criticized for possibly missing other leads while investigating the McCanns. So, okay. None of this is really shaking me up. Nothing new. I guess no. the thing that got me was the dog... The dogs that reacted to the McCann's car and their room, and their room for decomposition of a human body. Yeah. And I, I trust the dogs. I mean, the dogs have no well, agenda. The dogs don't have a motive. Right? right? They're objective. And they had alarmed for a, a decomposing body in the McCann's resort room and also in their car. Yeah. So I'm still suspicious of the parents. I am too. And I kind of feel like Maybe there was an accident or something, and the parents covered it up. I don't know why you do that, but it's yeah. a mystery, obviously. It is, but I, I think I'm still going to... I haven't seen anything or heard anything here that makes me change my mind. That, no, That the no. parents are involved somehow. Me either. I'm with you on that. Okay. Okay, what have you got? I have a lengthy one. Good. This, this is a great email. This is from Deborah in Australia. Australia. I, I was <laughs> slipping into my Crocodile Dundee accent. That's okay. So, so this is from Deborah. Dear Jill and Dick, as a school teacher, I was especially interested in Austin Sig, who killed Jessica Ridgway, and what led someone so young to be so violent and deviant. Research indicates that children and young people are accessing pornography in increasing numbers. With boys aged 14 to 17, being the most frequent underage consumers of pornographic material. So easy to get stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah, it is. It's, it's scary. While pornography is not a new phenomenon, the volume available and the way people are accessing it have changed. Absolutely. In a big way. Given the ethical difficulties of measuring the effect of children's exposure to pornography, most research is retrospective and has been conducted with adult or older adolescent research participants. Well, yeah, you can't very well expose kids to pornography to do a study. No, you can't. Uh, to do a prospective study, right? Absolutely, right. So you're looking back, and you're looking at more older kids and adults. You're not looking at younger kids. No. Pre-teens and teens. 
the available studies suggested the effects of frequent and routine viewing of pornography and other sexualized images may reinforce harmful gender stereotypes, contribute to young people forming unhealthy and sexist views of women and sex, and contribute to condoning violence against women. I think we would agree with all that. Mm-hmm. There is also evidence that suggests an association between frequent viewing of online pornography and sexually coercive behavior exhibited by young men. Yes. Mm-hmm. Pornography consumption by young people may also normalize sexual violence and contribute to unrealistic understandings of sex and sexuality. These understandings shape social norms around sex and may lead to young people feeling as though they should engage in the sexual behavior frequently displayed in pornography, including violent acts. Disturbing, but it makes sense, doesn't it? It certainly does. Pornography consumption has been associated with the practice of sexting, and young women have reported being coerced or feeling pressured to share naked images of themselves online. So this is a little bit different yes. offspring. Right, right. Offshoot. For example, a recent Australian survey of 15- to 19-year-old girls revealed that 51% believe girls feel social pressure to share naked images online. Then there's a related issue to consider how pornography influences young people's self-concept and body image. Sure it does. Well, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Because you know all those women are perfect. So how are you going to compete with that? Well, that's not even the issue really, but okay. So some psychologists and other professionals have anecdotally reported links between pornography use and an increase in problematic sexual behavior and sexual abuse among children and adolescents. This is, however, a poorly researched area, and it is difficult to determine a causal relationship between pornography consumption and sexual offending among children and adolescents. So here we get to the meat of Deborah's missive. Okay. Experts suggest that the following strategies are important to address issues regarding children and young people's access to and use of pornography. All right, let's hear it. That's important. These are the important things. It is important to remember that children and young people are naturally curious about sexuality and will seek out information about sex and relationships. Children and young people therefore need age-appropriate and quality sex and relationships education that goes beyond the mere mechanics of sex and reproduction. Well, doesn't that just cut right to the heart of it is the education? Come on. Yeah. That's so important. And what we teach in schools doesn't begin to approximate that. No, and what parents talk to their kids about probably doesn't even touch it either for the most part. No, it doesn't. I mean, I emphasize that if you're a teen and you have questions, talk to your parents. It's so hard, though, and we're all so hung up. It is. I mean, it's something we all need to work on for sure. (laughs) That doesn't begin to describe it. Yeah. Children and young people need help to decipher the messages conveyed in pornography especially in relation to gender roles, and to develop critical media skills in order to resist the sexist and violence-supportive narratives of pornography and other sexual media. Mm -hmm. Parents should have open, factual, and honest discussions with their children and adolescents about sex, gender, relationships, sexual consent, and pornography. 
Absolutely. That's where we need to step up. This is where we need to work on. Absolutely. Yep. The evidence shows that there are benefits of parental open communication with children and adolescents, including adolescents feeling more positive about their bodies, being better able to make informed sexual decisions, and being more aware of what constitutes appropriate sexual behavior. Bingo. Mm -hmm. That said, in the case of Austin Sieg, I have to believe that he was emotionally damaged before he was ever exposed to pornography. Yeah, we think he was. Probably, or you even had brought forth maybe the idea that his father had exposed him to pornography at a young age. Right. His father seemed kind of to be a disturbed individual. Absolutely. More he than was disturbed. violent against women, we know that much. In other words, the pornography had been more of a symptom for him than a disease. Thank you for the podcast, Deborah. Wow, Deborah put some thought into that one. She has. I, yeah. I think she's really researched it. She, yeah. She must... You think work in that area or work in that field? She's, well, she's pretty knowledgeable. She seems like it. Now, do you have any comments about that? What do you think? I mean, other than well, the comments we made throughout. <laughs> the, the comments only would be that we agree wholeheartedly with her. Yeah. But then still, that Austin Sig, it's just, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, I wonder, could you take a kid that might turn out normal and expose him to some horrible pornography and he could turn out doing this? And how well, scary is that? Because he committed a horrible, horrible crime. I think that's true. But I, I don't know that the opposite works. What do you and, mean? And we talked about that, that kids who are exposed at an early age, that treatment can remedy that. Well, I would hope so. If not, where's but, the hope? We haven't been able to show that it does. I guess another thing I'd just like to mention is we need to protect young children from being exposed to this stuff. Right. Which we talked well, about and before. And we've talked about that. But, yeah. You know, monitor what your kids are watching. Absolutely. Um, control the internet. Yes, because the internet can be wonderful and it can be horrible. In both cases. Yes. So I have um, a YouTube comment from Lana, and it's regarding a daughter's deadly deception, the Jennifer Pan story, and Tiger Parenting. So Lana says... Tiger parenting is a form of child abuse. It is not loving or caring, as was suggested in this video. Every single solitary second of your life has been planned and mapped out for you by your parents, and their expectations and demands are high. Failure is met with strong discipline and reprimand, and any positive accomplishments on the part of the children are practically ignored. The stress and the pressure never stops for these children, and their ideas and opinions mean nothing. These children are robbed of their childhood, and as you see in this story, even when Jennifer is of an age where she should be allowed to at least talk to or date boys, as her peers are most likely doing, she is not allowed. Even after school hours are filled with hours and hours of either physical or musical practice every day. Tiger parents are relentless, and I would assume that female children are treated even stricter than males. The children of tiger parents are robbed of their critical thinking skills and have no choice but to go along with their parents' strict and relentless demands. It's a horrible nightmare that feels like it will never end. Living with fear, pressure, and anxiety on a daily basis shouldn't happen to anyone, let alone children of overzealous parents who are supposed to be loving and nurturing, not torturing their kid. So, Lana, this, this um, email really made me think that Maybe we had underestimated the damage that tiger parenting can do to a kid. 
I mean, I can see what she's saying here. It's pretty serious. Yeah, I, I, although at the same time, I think that she's presenting more of an extreme view. But I'm, I get the, I get parenting. the feeling from this that she was tiger parented. It sounds like, and that right? it was pretty horrible. Yeah, abuse really. I could see how it could be a form of child abuse. Oh, I, I do too. But I, again, I think that her experience or her her writing is on the extreme side because we we have talked about people that said, yeah, my parents were worse than that, and I turned out okay. Well, is turning out okay an excuse for it, though? I mean... No, not necessarily. But, no. But I, the way this lady writes it, it destroyed her life. Well, she didn't say it destroyed her life. She said that she was abused, that it was an abuse of her. Yeah. Or it is abuse which I can see. So, I don't know. What I take from it is maybe to take tiger parenting a little more seriously than I previously did, because I could see how it could really rob you of a lot of things. Well, I, mean, I think it I wasn't probably raised that is a way, form so. of child abuse. Yeah, hard to say when you weren't raised that way. Right. But I definitely would just like to say that I appreciate what she's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Along with Jennifer Pan. This is from David Robinson by uh, email. Okay. Hey guys, this story gave me PTSD symptoms, post-traumatic stress disorder. Huh, so another tiger-parented kid? Well, here we go. I grew up in the 60s and 70s with a hidden learning disorder that wasn't diagnosed until I was 52. Wow. I have a nonverbal learning disorder that makes math, any math, nearly impossible for me to understand. If I had had parents like hers growing up, I have to wonder what extreme I would have been driven to. As within my household, my parents assumed my inability to comprehend fraction percentages and such was a character flaw. Mm, I can could, I could understand that, yeah. So with nonverbal learning disorder, the verbal brain works just great, better than average even. My verbal IQ is at 130. My nonverbal IQ just doesn't work for shit. My nonverbal tested at 92. The difference between the two should be no more than two points. Huh, wow. So, long story short, I had a nervous breakdown in the fourth grade because I was assumed to be lazy, not wanting to put in the hard work to understand math. Isn't that horrible? Isn't it? I just can't imagine. While at the same time reading at a high school level. Wow. So, my teacher's parents and the counselor I was sent to just could not understand why I could do one but not the other. For that matter, neither did I. The grown-ups had to be right that I was just a lazy, worthless kid. So could Jennifer have a hidden learning disorder? Not NLB, as she can do both music and math, two things I'm totally incapable of. So, Dr. Dickey, what do you think of this hypothesis? <laughs> go ahead. You're Dr. Dickey. You answer first. Well, you can first. go first. No, you say what you think first. I just have a lot going through my head about it. Well, I mean, I, I don't <laughs> think she would be an example of NLD, as David describes her. Right. Um, so... I think that's a consideration of things, but I don't think it fits Jennifer. What it makes me think of is a question that I asked Jeremy when we interviewed him about his book about Jennifer Pan, and it was um, maybe she couldn't live up to their expectations. Maybe she didn't have the intellect to get to that level, right? Well, that's certainly true. Because if you have those expectations and... You know, I'm a pretty intelligent person, but I did have trouble with math. When it got to the point where they're saying take calculus and all this, it made no sense to me. 
Yeah. And I could write a beautiful paper and I could do a lot of things, but that was tough for me. So I can see, which I know you can't because you're brilliant in every way. <laughs> no. <laughs> but none of that stuff was never easy for me. So I could see if you've got that kind of pressure and you're not able to perform as was this, um, what was his name who wrote the letter? David. As was David. I can see how hard that is because if your parents are saying you're lazy and you're not doing it, when you're a kid, your parents know everything. Yeah. Right? No, They're I, like gods, really. I, I think that part's true. So it's going to hurt your self-esteem and you're not going to just focus on your strengths. You're going to focus on what you can't do, which is really a shame. Because I think we really have to look at each person's individual gifts and what's you know what comes easy to them, what doesn't, and I think that that says something about our society that we've come a long way with that. Definitely. Don't you think we yeah. really have? But when it comes to tiger parenting, maybe not so much. No. So that might be one of the other flaws of tiger parenting is that you're not allowing for each child's individual strengths and weaknesses, which we all have. Right. Right. But I mean, the, the shorter answer to his hypothesis is that she probably doesn't exhibit NLD. Well, I think he said she doesn't have that, but that maybe she had some other shortcomings that she yeah. gave up because well, she couldn't live up to it. She obviously does. She murdered people or <laughs> directed the murder of people. Yes, I understand that. But, um, you know, I, I think she had the intellect. Yes, yeah, she had the intellect, but maybe not to do what they wanted. Maybe not to the extreme they thought. No, I'm not making excuses for the murders. That's that's okay. a whole other thing. All right. But Good. I'm saying that tiger parenting could really have a negative impact in that way. No question. And um, I'm really sorry for what he went through. That makes me sad to think about his childhood that way. That and the fact that it took him 50 years to get a diagnosis. Sure. I mean... It's it's not well understood as a disorder, but still. No, I, I mean, mean, we're in the infant stage as far as figuring these things I out, mean, really. He's 50-some years old, and he finally finds out. Well, that he this... should be able. At 50-something, I say, fuck it. Just love yourself the way you are. <laughs> right? Sure. Yeah. Hopefully, he's found something to do with his life that doesn't involve math, and he can appreciate who he is at this point, because I certainly have. Right. Right? Yes. Okay. My turn? Your turn. Did I take over on that? Did you want to say anything else? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I have um, a comment from Amanda from YouTube, and this is on our most recent podcast, Fatal Father and Munchausen by Proxy. So this is kind of interesting because her comments, I'm just going to say, they kind of go through, like she stops and makes comments during the episode. And her views kind of transform as we go through the episode. Okay. See what I'm saying? So this will be a, so she didn't a wait unique till the reading. End. Yeah. So she didn't wait till the end and write it all down. It was split up a little throughout right. the episode. So kind of contemporaneous. Yeah. As she saw something, she wrote something down and then yeah. watched some more, wrote something more right, down. Right, right. So Amanda says, I've just started this episode of your podcast and Darren Jenkinson already sounds like MSBP. Munchausen by proxy. Though I know this most commonly occurs in females. You know, they say that the original SIDS research was based on a serial killer with MSBP. The woman was Juanetta Hoyt, and the doctor was Dr. Alfred Steinschneider, whose research was celebrated and accepted, perhaps by some still to this day, 
on the research done on a woman who was actually murdering her children. So this is interesting. If I'm not mistaken, the only reason they figured this out was because some of the children that died were adopted, thus ruling out the theory that SIDS was a genetic problem. So that was a little digression. It she was. might have been drinking a little wine while she was writing this. Or craft beer. But it's good stuff. So she says, anyhow, not to digress, I would also like to add that this man follows the same patterns as alleged Munchausen by proxy perpetrator, the mother of Julie Gregory, famous Munchausen by proxy survivor, who wrote the novel Sickened about her life. That sounds interesting. I haven't read that book. It does. We'll have to look for that. Even down to starting fires, which her mother did for insurance fraud. I'm sure you guys will make that connection before the end. I don't think we did. (laughs) (laughs) I think we we failed on that one. Yeah. Okay. So now she's at the end of the episode. Okay. After finishing the episode, I have decided that, in my opinion, you are both correct at the end of the cast. I believe that, like Juanetta Hoyt, she meant to kill her children in the long run for attention. So as Dick, I believe she intentionally killed them. But, Jill, you are not altogether wrong in my opinion, but you are wrong at the focus of her ignorance. I think that she, like Winetta Hoyt, would have fed off the pity of the death of a child, but where Jill is correct is she was too stupid to get away with it. And I think she means he was too stupid to get away with it. I think so. Yeah, so I think she's talking about she's Darren. she's still talking about Darren, right? I think so. So I think she's saying that I was not altogether wrong, because I was saying that, that he fed off the pity of the death of the child, but he was too stupid to get away with it. He ended up killing them. So he meant to kill, but he was extremely stupid, and it was poorly planned. So even though she was probably drunk as shit, she said, we're both correct, so I said, I'm reading it. <laughs> oh, I don't know if she was drunk as shit, but uh, it was a little bit rambling. It's a little bit rambling, but it's some good points, but right? But I, I think she makes some good points. Yeah, so... I agree. Okay. I think that, but I'm really definitely want to look for this book written by a survivor of Munchausen by Roxy. Yeah, we have to look for that. Haven't read anything like that. No. Sickened. I'm going to read that. Okay, your turn. Let's do that. Kendra on Facebook regarding the staircase staircase murders. Oh, my favorite, Mike Peterson. Yeah. The staircase. We've been going. This this just won't die, will it? Never. Well, here we are. Not until that owl's behind bars. Damn it. (laughs) That's right. I won't rest until that owl's behind bars. Thanks for making my commute something to enjoy on the way to and from work. I am currently listening to the Staircase episodes. What a crazy case. I listened after you did the update on it, and I gotta say, the owl theory makes a lot of sense. See? Yep. Weirder things have happened. Absolutely they have. Like a man knowing to women who died at the bottom of the stairs. I wonder if Mike was maybe having an affair with the father of the girls he adopted. Don't you love that theory? I don't think that's a far-fetched theory. No, I don't either. A lot of people had suggested that maybe he was having an affair with the woman who fell down the stairs. But maybe right. he was having an affair with that an affair with that father. Because he did go both ways. He did. But I mean I, I think it's maybe not suspicious, but uh, why did he take custody or gain custody of the girls? Because they were all like one big family. They loved yeah. each other. So I think that's something to think about. Maybe that would have made some sense of the odd dynamics that were presented regarding how he stayed behind to get the young girls settled and why his wife at the time said no way they were having an affair. Right. So that that might just be denial. 
Well, maybe. The wife from back then has totally backed him up and been on his yeah. side, which usually ex-wives aren't like that. I know. But I, I still think it's kind of strange that they got custody of the kids. Well, I think they'd agreed that if anything happened to them, I think it went both ways. So I think Mike and his wife said if anything happened to them, that the boys would go to them and vice versa. Okay. I still haven't heard back from Lisa about that song. No, we'll keep looking. What was that song? Was it Gordon Lightfoot? Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, I still haven't heard about what that was all about. No, she's mulling over it. Okay. She'll get back to you. <laughs> okay. Or she's saying, you know, that was so obvious. What's wrong with those people? Yeah, they didn't... can't they see that? Yeah. You guys are fucking idiots. Yeah, she's done with us. Yeah. She's like, we'll that's, never, never that's hear from her again. That's the last fucking straw. Yeah. Well, I hope not. Anyway. Okay. So, yeah, I would think, sure. Any thoughts? I would think he could be having an affair with that guy. I don't think that... That would make him murder that woman, though. So No. I don't think he murdered her. I don't either. No. And what did they decide with her autopsy? That she had similar wounds, but she'd fallen down the stairs. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a done deal with him. Yes. But that's a thing that just won't won't go away until that owl is where he should We've be. We've got to cuff that owl and get him behind bars. That's right. So I also just wanted to add before we sign off for the day that I have a response from Jeremy, Jeremy Grimaldi, the author of A Daughter's Deadly Deception, regarding that feedback we got last week on juror misconduct, where juror number four's wife was in there causing all kinds of hullabaloos and right. in the pan trial. So what's so, Jeremy saying? Jeremy gave us a, a brief statement. He said, this issue is being appealed as part of Jennifer's appeal. I know that for sure. I personally think it was very amateurish. However, I do not believe that it irrevocably altered the fairness of the trial, and I don't believe it needs to be retried. So he's coming Which down on it being me. inconsequential. Yeah, or, and he or, was there for the whole thing. So. And he sat through all 10 months of that sucker. Yeah, so I'm going to go with what he said. Although it did seem they should have probably kicked him out, I would think. But yeah, it did seem like kind of nonsense. It didn't seem like anything really serious. Right. Right. Okay. So that's feedback for today. A lot of feedback. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's becoming popular. Yeah, we get a lot of a lot of people writing in now, which I love. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. You know it'd be fun though. What? Get some verbal feedback. That just doesn't happen. People I know. don't leave voicemails. People don't like to talk. It's okay. So but give us the feedback and if you're so inclined, send a voice message. Sure. I've kind of given up on that though. Yeah. I'm fine reading it. Okay. Yep. But if people want to leave voicemails, it's still an option. I'd be happy to play them. We will. Yep. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time, guys.